You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. The federal election being fought right off the back of the budget, we've heard a lot already from politicians about tax, including tax concessions and tax cuts, but also debt and deficit and unaffordable spending. And on the flip side, we've heard about the need for more spending on services like health and education. We know what the various politicians think, but what about us? Uh, The per capita think tank is a progressive think tank, and it looks at um, once a year uh, assesses Australians' attitudes towards the amount of tax we pay and what it's spent on and we're joined now by executive director of per capita david hetherington and um, david it's great to have you on triple r and this is the sixth time you've looked at our attitude towards tax i suppose you should sort of set it up for us who do you survey about tax and and what, what are the kinds of things that you ask us so we go out to about 1,500 Australians uh, over the age of 18. We, we try and get a representative sample that kind of covers all the states and cities and regional areas and men and women and different income levels. And we ask them how they feel about their own tax contributions. We ask them how they feel about um, this tax system as a whole and how well it works. And we ask them about uh, spending on public services and whether they think we're doing well, we should be doing less or more. Um, and as you say, we've done it uh, since 2010. So we're in our sixth round now, and uh, and we've seen a real evolution of, of attitudes over that time. And so now you're finding in this recent tax survey that we're more willing to pay more tax if it's spent on, on public services such as health and education. Is that the kind of overarching finding that you found with regards to um, our willingness to pay? That's right. That's the striking finding of this year's survey. We asked people... Would you personally be willing to pay more tax um, if it was going to um, particular types of public service? And strikingly, we've got, um, you know, two-thirds of people, 66 cent, 66% say, personally, I would be willing to pay more tax uh, if I knew that was going to health, for example. Uh, about 50% say the same for education. And it's a, it's a real interesting expression of, of willingness to pay. Um, in the past, when we've asked these questions, people are more likely to say oh, yes, I want to see more spending on health and education, but I want other people to pay for it. What's different this year is people are kind of saying, look, I recognise overall we're not collecting enough, so if it was going to these areas, I'd be willing to, to, to pay a bit more. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because the, the rhetoric we're hearing, particularly from the coalition government, is to really reduce taxes. Particularly, we're, we're looking at small, you know, tax for small business going down. For we've, you know, addressed the there's a, an effective tax cut for people that earn between eighty and eighty seven thousand dollars. They're kind of not pushing up into the next tax bracket and the like. So we, on one hand, there's it sounds like there's an under underlying willingness to pay, but on the other, we're getting tax concessions in some sectors. Well, that's right. Um, you know, since since 2009-10, really, the coalition has, has gone very hard on this notion that we're overtaxed and uh, that we need to reduce the overall tax take because we are we are spending more than we can afford. And in the first couple of years of our survey, broadly, the public would have said that's right. They said, you know, I feel, I feel I'm overtaxed. I feel um, that the contributions across the system are too high, and uh, and I would like to see that reduced. We've seen those attitudes flip in the last two or three years. And what people say now is, no, I don't feel uh, I'm overtaxed. More than more than a 50% say that they, they feel they pay the right amount, not too much. Uh, and they want to see more raised for the spending on services. And so are we a high-taxing country, David? We think we are. 
if you, if you ask people... For is it the eye of the beholder? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. If you ask people for their perception on whether Australia is a, a high-taxing, big-spending country, um, a very large share of people say that 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 is what we are. When you actually look at the objective data, if you compare us with the other uh, 33 countries in the OECD, we're pretty close to the bottom. We're, we're a low-taxing, um, low-spending country by international standards. I think we're sixth uh, out of 34 OECD countries. And we, we learnt about ourselves a couple of years ago with the very unpopular budget in 2014 that fairness is... a well, not only a, a sort of a narrative that comes from, from our politicians, but something that we hold quite dear in this country, that we want taxation to be fair. Are we a fair taxing country? Do we think we're a fair taxing country? We, we don't think we are. And that's been a big uh, theme of the survey for the last three years, really since that 2014 budget. Um, uh, about... Uh, Two-thirds of people say that they think that the tax system uh, unfairly advantages the wealthy. Uh, we get 83% of people say that corporate tax avoidance uh, is a big blight on the system. Uh, so there's, a, there's a, a kind of strong perception there that, that the system is unfair and, and specifically that it favours um, both high-income earners and big business. And do you think then that um, the coalition government is kind of hearing this as well? Because we saw in in the budget, your, your survey came out just before the budget, it was announced last week and we we saw uh, the government going after superannuation concessions by for the most wealthy in our our um, country and also having a look at uh, sort of tax avoidance corporate tax avoidance is this enough do you think to kind of make people feel that that they're being heard well, I think there definitely moves in the right direction, and, and we found it really interesting when we compared the measures in the budget with what we'd, what we'd seen released in the tax survey the week before, uh, the number of areas where it appeared that uh, measures in the budget were in line with what the public is thinking. So, for example, the, the tax cut um, for companies goes to small business in the first instance, and our survey respondents would say that's a good thing. They, they think... Uh, in the main, small businesses pay too much tax in, in complete contrast to big businesses which don't, don't pay enough. If that's extended as the, as the government proposes over 10 years to big businesses, I think our respondents would find that um, a backward step. But at the moment, the small business tax cut would, would be seen as positive. A couple of other examples. You mentioned the, um, the crackdown on superannuation concessions. That's another strong finding of our surveys that people think um, high-income earners uh, find it too easy to take advantage of tax concessions like superannuation. Uh, and another one is that, that tax cut in the $80,000 bracket. Uh, in the main, uh, people, people's view of their own tax contributions uh, changes with income and those at the top uh, think they pay uh, too much and, and those at the bottom think they probably pay the right amount. But the big exception is that $80,000 bracket where you see a lot of pressure, you see cost of living pressures on, on families in particular and they say, gee, we're feeling squeezed by everything including the tax system. So the coalition's tax cut uh, in that bracket will go down well. We're speaking with the Executive Director of uh, Per Capita, a progressive think tank. They release each year a, a tax survey of our attitudes towards taxation and David Hetherington is with us. And David, I, um, when reading through the survey, it, I, I, I kind of had politician slogans kind of ring through my head as well. But at the same time, I, I, I kept thinking that Getting taxed more is, is one thing and perhaps people do accept it if the service uh, delivery is very good. But do we trust politicians to spend the tax dollar wisely? 
I'm not sure we do. Uh, if you look at all the evidence out there, it says that our our faith in in politics and politicians and and the machinery of government has been eroded over a long period of time. And that's why when we ask these questions, the, the strongest responses you get are when you say, "Would you be willing to pay more tax if it was spent on health and hospitals?" And in that instance, people will say yes. If you say, you know, are you willing to pay more tax generally as an overall principle? they're much more likely to say no. And that's about the, the kind of level of faith in, in politicians' ability to, A, um, stick to their promises, uh, but, B, in, in the overall ability of government to channel money uh, where it should be going, even if the politicians want it to go there. And so what do you think with regards to, to the election campaign that we're now in? Do you think tax will continue to be this kind of um, sparring ground, I suppose? I mean, negative gearing is definitely uh, on, the, on the sort of tax concession side of things that is getting spoken about quite a lot because there's a difference there with, between Labor and, and the Coalition. Are there other kinds of sort of policies that go to the tax system that we're likely to, to keep hearing about through this election campaign? Absolutely. I, I think that the two budget speeches last week from uh, Malcolm Turnbull on Tuesday and Bill Shorten on Thursday absolutely set up a debate about our tax and spending system in this country. And to be honest, it's, it's the most stark that that divide has been for many years, I, I think. So, you know, Malcolm Turnbull's pitch effectively is by cutting tax rates over time, I will create jobs and growth. Bill Turnbull's pitch is... We've had an unfair system that allows people at the top not to contribute enough and therefore we're not getting the money we need to pay for things like Gonski. I'm going to crack down on that through negative gearing, through super tax concessions, and I'll channel the money back in to schools and hospitals. And do you think it's going to get, uh, capture our hearts and minds, talking, talking tax through, through this election? Is this, what, is this what people want to hear, do you think? I don't want to overstate it. Tax, tax isn't, a, isn't a, certainly not a hearts issue. It might be a minds issue. But, but it's, it's not the kind of symbolic leadership that, that tells a story about the direction the country's going. This is, this is kind of mechanical stuff and hip pocket stuff. But what it does do is offer voters a choice about whether over time they want to go uh, further in the, in the uh, low tax, low spend direction, uh, which is where we've kind of moved over the last decade or so, or whether they want to see uh, a reasonable tax base maintained in order to deliver high-quality services. And you hear this described a lot as, do we have a revenue problem or do we have a spending problem? Um, I, uh, are we spending too much, which is the coalition's view, or are we failing to raise enough to pay for the things that we want, which is Labor's view? And I think that, that debate will continue as a real theme throughout the campaign. Well, uh, I'm sure we'll be speaking to you again next year, uh, David, as you continue to uh, um, check out our attitudes towards tax. And thanks for joining us on Triple R today. Not at all, Claudia. Thank you. Uh, this morning we're joined by Victoria's new Principal Commissioner for Children and Young People, Liane Buchanan. She's only been in the job just over a month um, but has already spoken strongly on issues such as the impact of gambling on children, changes to youth bail laws and family violence. And previously, Liana was Executive Officer of the Federation of Community Legal Centres and a Commissioner with the Victorian Law Reform Commission and other roles as well. And uh, she has a long and distinguished career. And welcome to Triple R. It's really great to have you in here. Yeah, thank and you. congratulations on the five-year role. 
Thanks. It's good to be here. And um, primarily your um, role is to advocate for our most vulnerable children in Victoria. And I suppose um, we should start with, like, what makes a child vulnerable? Who, who, are, who are the people you're advocating for? So you're right, that's the focus of the role, although it's not the only focus, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but the legislation that sets up the commissioner um, role and the commission that I work with and lead um, sets out who who vulnerable children are and really that's defined in the Act as any children and young people who are in contact with child protection, who are in youth justice, who are in out-of-home care. So there are some categories of kids that are clearly under the legislation um, designated as vulnerable and yes, the role is partly to speak out on their behalf and advise government about how to improve um, service responses for those kids uh, as well as to oversee and monitor those different service systems so that's a big part of the role but the role is also slightly broader so there is part of the role that's about promoting the interests and well-being of children and young people generally so right across the board in Victoria. And um, I'd love to hear the kinds of things you can do but when your f- position was first announced it was also said that your office had increased responsibilities which is probably a good thing to have when you start in a new role what what are your extra powers so the most recent changes are some changes that really expand our monitoring role particularly in relation to youth justice uh, so we've always had a broad monitoring role with these service systems i just mentioned uh, but now we are required to be provided by the department with any um, uh, reports of serious incidents that happen in out-of-home care and also in youth justice so what that means is that we are able to track what's happening in youth justice and be a bit more proactive about keeping an eye on what's going on for kids who are locked up in youth detention and that is one issue that you've already spoken out about in your role in the last four weeks because we saw you know a front page newspaper article that um, really um, I'm trying to see what I can't remember what scaremongering I think you called it um, maybe tell us tell us what the changes are with regards to juvenile bail in Victoria and I suppose why you think um, parts of the media are pushing the alarm button So um, you're right, what we saw last week was really a prime example of the kind of scare campaign that um, unfortunately can get legs very easily, that can really inflame some of the stereotypes, negative stereotypes about young people, and unfortunately can really push government into some um, uh, less than sensible and not evidence-based policy. The bail changes that we're talking about are changes that essentially reverse some changes that the previous government introduced uh, a couple of years ago. So what they do is um, they, they introduce a number of factors that Uh, magistrates have to take into account, a court has to take into account when they're deciding whether to grant bail to an under 18 year old or not. And they're very sensible factors. The, the, The court has to look at things like, will this disrupt the child's living arrangements? Will this disrupt their access to education or training or whatever positive uh, influences there are in their lives. So none of that is particularly radical. The other change is that under the 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 amendments that the previous government introduced for both adults and children, a breach of bail, even if it's, say, a breach of curfew, uh, is in itself a new offence. So what we've seen as a result of that is that the number of kids on remand in youth 
youth detention centres has gone through the roof. At any given point in time now, we're looking at about 75 to 80% of kids who are locked up in our youth justice system are on remand, which means they haven't been sentenced, they haven't even been convicted. Um, so what these changes uh, that the government moved, introduced last year and that just took effect, they reversed that. So now a kid who's, uh, who's on bail, who uh, breaches bail, they can still be pulled back to court. They can still be taken by police to court and they can still have their, their um, bail revoked, uh, but it's not automatically a new offence. And um, in a, another previous role you held, you held was on director for the Office of Correctional Services Review. And uh, I think from that you know, experience that you've had um, looking at um, correction services, you did say that, you know, on one hand, we want to be kind of tough on crime, I suppose. On the other, we're staying silent about the social harms and entrenched disadvantage that help lead children down the path to crime. And I suppose, what is it uh, um, that we can do to deal with those social drivers? I mean, there's there's so much. We really have to... What we see, both in the adult system and, and the youth justice system, we see a lot of investment in, in what people call the back end. So when there's a level of disengagement or there's a level of behaviour and offending behaviour that require a pretty, um, uh, a pretty hard response, ultimately we need to try and change some of that investment and focus so that we get early intervention. I'm not talking about anything new. This isn't rocket science, but it does seem pretty hard for governments successive governments to nail. Um, in the youth justice space, uh, as you say, the people that we're locking up, the kids that we're locking up, I mean, two-thirds of them are actually in the child protection system. So we're talking about two-thirds of those kids are themselves victims of abuse and serious neglect. And so clearly we need to have approaches that don't just entrench them into some further and more serious offending. We clearly need to have approaches that try and tackle what causes them to offend in the first place. It kind of just makes sense. Uh, I think, Leanna, you know, we, we have more so than we have in the past, had conversations around family violence and and also the, the failures really in, in child protection that we've had in this state and, and also across the country. Um, we've had the recommendations come out of the, the Royal Commission into Family Violence. Um, will things change as a result of those recommendations being implemented over time? Uh, like every other person who's being a long-term advocate to try and get family violence on the agenda and improve the way as a whole society we respond, I hope so. Uh, and we've seen a pretty good start. I think, you know, we'd have to say the government's initial response at a state level has been pretty positive. There's been some positive initial investment, the commitment, of course, to act on all of the Royal Commission recommendations. I'll be working pretty hard, though, as Commissioner for Children and Young People to make sure that we don't lose the focus on children. I think um, we've got a fantastic shift. We've had a massive shift in the last couple of years looking at uh, the extent of family violence, and there's really a different level of understanding about that. Part of that shift has been to understand that kids who are exposed to family violence, whether they're hit or not, are themselves victims and they can't just be treated as an appendage, part and parcel of usually the woman victim, their mum. They do have special needs and they do have particular issues that we need to address. The Royal Commission came out really clearly uh, and said that. Uh, there's been some initial investment to improve responses to, to children. Um, but I'm really keen to make sure we don't lose sight of that. Um, the sad reality is people will move on from having this focus on family violence. That will happen sooner 
than any of us want. Um, but that's, you know, that's the way the kind of media cycle sh- moves. Um, before that happens, I'm going to make sure that children remain front and centre in the debate about how we improve responses to family violence, how we really support victims of family violence, not just adults, but also kids. And we, we know more and more all the time, don't we, about the, the harm to children who have been um, victims and who has, have been survivors too of, of family violence that it it does have lasting um, effect and I I wonder is that well un- is that well understood in the education system and in the sort of br- broader community do you think that the kind of ongoing support that children will need through their lives if they've if they've experienced family violence? I, I think that's an understanding that's only just dawning. So no, I don't think that's necessarily spread the way it needs to be spread across education, uh, across the broader community, across um, early childhood services and so on. If I'm really frank, I don't think it's completely understood within child protection yet. Uh, there's been some improvements in recent years in how child protection actually understands and responds to family violence um but i think there's a long way to go i mean do you think we think that children are more resilient than perhaps they are because kids do do seem to kind of get up and 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 continue on all that's that that's the kind of outward impression you get and people say oh so brave and look at them get on with things but um there's there's a deeper story I think. Yeah, I think, look, I think that's right. I think we understand more about some of the hidden impacts or the impacts that aren't as immediately obvious in many kids. I think as the research on that develops, um, then at a professional level, professionals who are working in the relevant spaces, they do they do understand that more. But I don't know that there's generally a broad community understanding of that. Then the other thing I think that we see a lot is because, I mean, family violence now uh, accounts for or is present in about half the notifications to child protection. So we are seeing um, a lot of the families that are known to child protection have family violence as one of one of the things that's playing out. Um, and so, I mean, I think... I think there is there's a real need to start looking at what what immediate needs do these kids have to prevent some of the long term impacts. And again, then if you kind of track through to kids who are in out of home care, kids who do end up in the youth justice system, a lot of those kids have family violence in their background. And when you um, you're um, in taking the role, you you spoke out pretty early on about your own childhood experiences of family violence. And I wonder how um, has sharing your story been in taking this role? How that has it been a um, a new thing for you to be talking publicly about your own life in that way? Uh, yeah, it was very it was very new and, and not planned. Um, I, I literally got on the phone to I think it was Mickey Perkins from the Age, and she said, "I've been told I've got to kind of work out what makes you uh, tick, what what, what kind of um, made you realise the world wasn't fair." And I thought I could lie. Uh, you know, I could make a, up a kind of story about something else that's happened in my um, my life. Um, but actually that just feeds this notion that people who experience violence have something to be ashamed of or should hide it. The reali- reality was I'd gone 20-odd li- years of my working life not talking about it because in some ways it wasn't relevant. Um, in some ways what's relevant is what I can do as a lawyer, as a researcher, as an advocate um, uh, uh, and the other roles that I've had. You know, my skills and my kind of capacity were, were, were what was most relevant. But it did it, it did kind of strike me on that day uh, facing that question. I thought, well, there's really no harm in being upfront about it and we do need to have the conversation about it. people in public life. Given the prevalence of family violence, there will be people 
all through public life who've had some of this in their experience and we probably need to start talking about that. And you spoke on a panel recently um, looking at some new initiatives, new ideas, things that we can bring into this space to improve the opportunities for children, um, particularly vulnerable young children. And one of them was this idea of like a a school lawyer and you've coming from that legal background and the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Are we going to start seeing these kinds of initiatives take hold, do you think, having having professionals such as y- yourself or other lawyers embedded in the school system, in the education? I hope so. Uh, if, if what can they do in that role? Oh, look, so, I mean, the beauty of that and the relevance to the conversations that we're having about family violence and other kinds of abuse and issues that kids experience is um, the beauty of a school lawyer, and there's only one in the state and in fact he's the first in the country um, so it's you know pretty leading edge stuff from a community legal centre in um, in Werribee called West Justice but that lawyer is there to be able to speak in confidence with any kid about any issue so if you're looking at a child who is having a hard time at home or whose parents um, are, are having a difficult time and um, uh, one parent's the subject to violence uh, and the, the, the young person just doesn't know what to do about it or doesn't know what to do to protect themselves, then they can go to this lawyer in the school, they can talk in absolute confidence and then they can get some information about their own rights, what the legal system might be able to do for them, for their, kind of, for their, for their wider family. Um, and it starts to shift the notion of young people um, to uh, a notion of beings with rights these are also they are kind of you know we talk about vulnerability and the the, the notion of vulnerability is in the legislation um, uh, that uh, gives me my powers but these are also young people with rights they've got a whole raft of human rights they've got the same rights as adults plus some extra rights because of their age uh, and inexperience Um, and when you start providing young people with access to an advocate their own advocate it kind of shifts the debate it shifts the focus a little bit and I think that's quite positive. Yeah it's really interesting because I think more often than not we hear about counsellors and opportunities for young people to talk to somebody about vocational training or or things like this so adding um, a lawyer you know to to that list of I suppose professionals that are outside the school coming into them is is a new idea definitely and I wonder are there other ideas like that that have been tried that you're that you're excited about that might see some shifts taking place yeah look I what I'm finding now that I'm in this job and I'm going it's only been a month but I'm making a bit of an effort to get out and talk to um, different people find out what's happening there are there are kind of small organizations and some larger organizations doing really interesting work all over the state so I would say without going into lots of the examples there are there are lots of particular examples of programs uh, of approaches that are being tried to try and give young people a voice to try and give them support that they need to try and make sure they've got access to the services that might um, help them overcome what they've experienced so far so we do have a lot of incredibly good practice um, uh, going on in Victoria 
part of the challenge is to make sure that the good um, areas of practice and the good programs get the right funding so that they can be um, they can be spread across the state. Um, uh, uh, your, um, uh, the uh, the person that you replaced said that um, Victoria wasn't a very great parent um, when when leaving the job, and I wonder you've got five years. What um, what is it that you're hoping uh, to achieve in this role as, as Commissioner for Children and Young People? Well, look, um, you're right, Bernie Geary, who was in this role before me and is a really strong advocate for children and young people, um, he talked a lot and focused a lot about the extent to which Victoria, the state of Victoria, um, doesn't quite equip its responsibilities when it steps in in lieu of a, pa- a, a, a child's parents. Um, he had a lot of focus on residential care uh, and some of uh, what happens to children who are in residential care and particularly um, sexual exploitation and, uh, and abuse. Um, clearly by the end of five years I'd like to see us uh, really not have residential care in the way that it currently exists in Victoria. Um, I'd like us to be in a position where children who can't live um, uh, with their parents uh, are living with other family members or other carers in home-based care but have access to all of the support they need. Ideally, I'd like to see far few um, kids in that situation. So we, we, we've got a government in place that has just made some announcements about directions towards improving the amount of early intervention. Um, it's very early days. I'm hoping to be part of that shift and advise that shift. And my hope is that some of that will be the reality. Um, in the meantime, what I'll be doing over the five years is continuing to watch very, very closely and play that oversight role to make sure that whatever experiences children and young people are having in child protection, how to home care and youth justice, I'm monitoring that really closely, trying to improve it where it needs to be improved. Uh, and if I can't get traction, then um, I'm very prepared to make some of that public if that's needed. Good luck, and um, if the past month is anything to go by, you will be vocal, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you, and thanks for coming into Triple R today. Uh, Leanna Buchanan, our new uh, advocate um, for children and young people, the Commissioner um, for Children and Young People in Victoria, and um, it's wonderful to have you on Triple R and and learn a bit about what you're going to do and and what makes you tick. Thanks for coming. Many thanks. But if you've missed it, you'll, um, you'll miss Ponyface performing in Nebraska. You'll soon have the chance to watch the band perform it in full on the big screen because a new film's being released later this month called Ponyface Nebraska Live at the Bakehouse. And we have Simon Bailey from the band and film director Aaron Cuthbert in studio both. Welcome. and uh, Thank you. Great to see you. Oh, Welcome to Triple A. You might have to move a bit closer there, Aaron. Yep. And um, I tried to get all clever earlier to kind of, you know, make the link between a film of a band performing live tracks, um, i.e. Cowboy Junkies, um, and what you're trying to do with Nebraska because I just think it's just such a wonderful, beautiful way to present music and i wonder what what's the it was such a great link too because i hadn't thought about uh, yeah except no one could hear the song (laughs) yeah maybe maybe later in the day yeah i might have to play it again um but i think yeah it's a beautiful um film i I love watching Mm. those musicians work in that space yeah i've seen i've seen uh snippets of it um and that that uh what's what's the story with that they did they did it at trinity church and uh the record just became a classic and they so they went back and filmed it yeah yeah. And, the, and then they d- went back and did it again. Yeah. yeah. And revisited it. Yeah. It's fantastic. And um, so it wasn't that that inspired you because, Aaron, you haven't seen it, but you were no. the one that thought, you know what, I want to make a film of these guys performing Nebraska. Why? Uh, yeah, why? Why? Well, good question. <laughs> uh, 
There's a year of work only that came from your great idea. <laughs> no, it's just that, that album for me has been uh, a big influence for years. My friend Tom gave it to me in, like, late 90s, and I just obsessed with it for three months. I think I listened to it, like, five times a day because it really, like, opened my eyes up to storytelling and music, yeah. which then influenced me into smog, like, everything like that. So, uh, yeah, it sort of always sat there with me, so... When I was driving home and uh, the ghost was playing Atlantic City, I was just like, shit, that's cool. Mm. So I just thought, oh, what can I do to give back? So I just emailed Simon and then emailed him again and again and again and again. And, again. and then he finally answered the email. No, I think I, I found was, which... That was pretty quick, wasn't it? Uh, I think there was like 10 different types of emails. Oh, so. yeah, okay. And then we are on the same path, really. It was just like, I want to make this in the film and I reckon we should do it at the bake house. Yeah, I like, couldn't believe it. I, want to do but it I, too, I so. thought you just wanted to make, like, do a clip and then you're like, no, I want to do the whole album. I'm like, wow, that's, uh, that's a lot of work. But, I, you know, like, yeah, I was up for it. I think, like, you, you couldn't choose just one song. It has to be the whole album because I think you yeah. would upset a lot of people if you just chose, like, what I thought was the best song mm. because everyone has a reaction to You do upset whatever. a lot of people. We, yeah. we, 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 did a, we played it one time and left a song out. Yeah, so. <laughs> so you play it, and so tell us about your shows first, because you've done how many performances of uh, Nebraska? We've done, done about six. Um, they started off at Pure Pop with the, the Summer of Classic albums. That was like a couple of years ago. And then we had uh, like a bit of a, a hiatus because um, uh, Chris uh, had to have surgery, and so we took like six months off, and, um, uh, you know, it took a while to get back on track. But um, then the album came out because it was sort of so easy to record because um you know like learning the songs we just sort of decided to make an album out of it and put it out and that's that's how the cobra snake thing happened with those guys and they put onto vinyl and stuff and and you run it from start to finish you you play in album order yeah yeah (laughs) and the film goes in album order yeah we did we just pretty much set it up the idea was just to do one take we set up a bunch of cameras set up all the recording gear and just went like, like, I've never done that before, so I'm like, uh, okay, let's just go, see what happens. And what you see in the video is just the one run-through. Mm. And uh, I think we captured it perfectly. Like, it was it good just, for you guys because, like, Commoner, they do, a, like, a, a lot of um, really good sort of storytelling kind of... Um, almost like short films kind of stuff but for small businesses, but they're all sort of mus- ex-musos themselves and they... It seems like they want to do like a, a music thing, a thing, like a, a fun music thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, we do a lot of short form docos and things like that. And like in today's world, everything's like a single or five minutes. And I thought, you know, let's do an hour. Let's put that back. I think you know, albums aren't appreciated as whole albums anymore, from storytelling from start to finish. So you know, if uh, you know, put this out and create some sort of, you can put it on, you know, smoke a joint, kick back, and uh, you know, enjoy. A little moment in time. So, tell us about the bakehouse for those that don't know the space. Why was that the the place well, to film this film? It's funny because we both thought of it at the same time. Um, we were rehearsing upstairs, and that's a really nice room up there. It's like all floorboards, and quite. I think it's the biggest room there. And uh, yeah, I think before Boogie we were rehearsing there, and that's when around the time Aaron was saying we should, have, you know, think about filming it. And I think it was like the first. Yeah, thing we I thought mean, of that room was just. Um, it was a no-brainer the, the scrap museum room, and I've gone in and out there all the time talking to Quincy. He's a 
Quincy's a great person who runs the bakehouse. You always go in there and he tells you stories for hours on end, gives you tours all the time. So, you know, it was, and that sort of the sound and the stories that in the album sort of play on that sort of textual sort of what that space is. Mm. You know, the seedy sort of back room, dive bar slash warehousey sort of vibe. And so uh, that was, and it was a no brainer because, you know, we didn't have much money. So that room was already set up, dressed, so to speak. Mm. And all we had to do was turn up plug in turn a smoke machine on to make it look even more seedy and and <laughs> stuff like that and um and press record it's 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 seasoned isn't it like it's, it's a warning room yeah and it's and it's just a good space yeah. it just feels good kind of like, churchy yeah. yeah and so like any great film you've got a cast of thousands that were involved with it yeah. tell us who's who's in the film and who who was involved with it well the nebraska band pretty much except for matt i think he was on tour so he didn't get to 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 be in that one, but um, uh, Shane O'Mara, Katie from Howl at the Moon, uh, Jay Krantz from Brighter Later, um, Biddy Connor, and Damien, and the rest of Ponyface. Um, I think that's it. And uh, yeah, there was a lot going on that day. There was a lot, like, how many, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of cameras. Yeah, yeah, I had um, uh, DAP that I use all the time, Caesar Selmeron, who's like amazing, and he helped me create the, the lighting and the space, and we spent like a good half day setting all that up. And then my business partner, Mark, was operating a camera and then a couple of young guys who I've met, Mickey D and Adam, who were always biting at the bit to work with work with us. So I said, I'm going to do this. Do you want to come along and just see what happens? So we did that. And I got my dad to do the catering, which was fun. That was great. <laughs> yeah, it was good. <laughs> and we just... And Mountain Goat gave us a couple of slabs of beer and we just sort of kicked back and just sort of went... It was like a rehearsal jam sort of vibe that yeah, we were well, creating. Yeah, because we'd never done anything like that ourselves, so it was, fu- it was really funny, and uh, especially in post-production too, to actually, you know, check out what your bandmates are actually doing, because you never get to, you know, you don't really see what they're doing. Or hear, or hear oh, what you they're mean doing. when, <laughs> when watching it even. back? Yeah, to yeah. See, yeah, right. Yeah, and like just even hearing, it's like, oh, that's what you're doing that bit. All right, cool. <laughs> you know, because everyone, it's like, it's, it's, everyone plays very dynamically and softly and, um, and then quite loudly, so... Yeah, there's a lot going on, especially, you know, it's an eight-piece band all playing, you know, pretty much DAG, but um, everyone's doing it, doing it their own way. Yeah, and I mean, the, you've got, as I said, like at least one clip up already online that people can, can check out, but the, the rest of it's coming our way on the 20th of, of May, and um, and I'm interested in the way you're distributing it, because you, you can buy it and you can rent it that's correct, as yeah. well yeah tell us you know tell us about the new the new way of delivering video to the to the masses aaron i think it's just more of accessibility for people for you know nowadays it's like no one watches tv or anything like that anymore you're either downloading or streaming or whatever like that so and to try and push uh this video not just here in melbourne but you know interstate and then overseas for the guys to you know open up their opportunity to play the album in and around town and stuff like that so it's just sort of a no-brainer, especially when you've got no money as well. It's easy, like, this format, you just sort of you know, sign up, upload to... Vimeo On Demand is the, the site we're using, and you can set it up your own way and do your own artwork and stuff like that. And, you know, the idea isn't to make... what not We're not making money from it. It's just more of an experiment and putting it out there and seeing how people react to it, you know, see if it works or not, and then from that, you know, develop more ideas and see where we go from there, so... Yeah, it's very beautiful cinematography, and I wonder, Simon, is it? How, did it affect the way you played? Do you think? Like, did, were you conscious that you had cameras looking from every angle, or did you kind of just took a while to settle it? into it? Because you know, like, 
you know, it just felt like there was a lot of money in the room. Like, you could trip over it and break a lot of stuff, <laughs> you know. Um, but after, it, I think, it, yeah, after about an hour, you know, we did, like, a blocking run-through and mm. stuff like that. And then I think, you know, um, there was, like, a, a bottle of whiskey there for a prop that we sort of got into. And after that, the nerves, <laughs> the nerves went away. Um, yeah. But we didn't know what was going on. I didn't think I, I think I made a conscious effort not to check out a viewfinder or anything like that on the day. Yeah. And the idea wasn't to do like a rock show type video with band cameras pointing. It was more of a creator, the band in a round and sort of you're looking over people's shoulder or you're catching out of the corner of your eye type of vibe. Yeah, that, that so helps. It was more of a sort of, you know, you sort of... Uh, the feeling was you're at a gig up the back looking over someone's shoulder type of vibe more than, you know, here we have this perfectly polished, perfect picture because I think that aligns to... The way these guys do the album as well, just that that nice raw sort of. It's more personal because yeah. you've, got, you've got a small room and there's no audience there. The, the viewer is is the audience, and so you're sort of in a band. You're sort of um, a little uh, amalgamated there, you know. Yeah, and totally. We, I mean, we played on so many different ways of doing it. Like we're going to set it up, have an audience, set it up as a bar, do all these sort of things, and then that sort of. I think we're just trying to complicate it too much. Yeah, and we sort of <laughs> let's just have the band play instead and just video that, and it'll be. Done. But when you're launching the film, yeah, um, at the Caravan Caravan Club, uh, May twentieth, on the day that it's available for download. So yeah, yeah, there's no cheating. And so you're, you're performing the the album. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do it all all um, all with the whole cast and everything. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the broads uh, they're going to open for us. That's going to be really cool because um, they're sort of like murder ballads kind of twinsies as well so it's gonna be kind of it's gonna be a spooky night sounds cool <laughs> you do such a great job playing that album i really love it and um huge Thanks, fan and i mean does it feel do, do you get a different feeling every time you play these songs from nebraska or yeah the, because they're such good stories uh, and the band's so um atmospheric you know um it's 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 kind of elastic every time you know there's a lot of room for um, improvising and just getting um, uh, the music and you know the whatever's going on. Um, yeah, it's al- it's always different. And what about your own um, music? You've got something. Yeah, on yeah, the we're we're, um, we're very close to finishing our fifth album, so that'll that'll be coming out um, pretty soon. Yeah. Well, all the best with the launch and um, congratulations on the film and I'm looking forward to seeing the whole thing myself and um, and well done, Aaron. And Thank I wonder, um, maybe the first of many full-length album projects. I hope projects. so. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I just hope people love it as much as uh, we love it. It's, yeah, it, it feels good, it feels right, so I think people are going to like it a lot. Yeah, well, people should take it seriously if they get an email from you by the sounds of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Ouch. I'm not a stalker, not at all. No, no, good on you for replying. And, um, and uh, thanks for staying in touch with us as well on The Grapevine, and it's always good to see you, and we'll, we'll catch you again soon. Cheers, thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events, and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au. 